How's everyone doing? Good. Yeah. Good. Oh, goodness. Well, it's um, appropriate for us to end uh, our study of the liberty question, which I want to do this morning, in uh, the end of chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, which is where we're at. Uh, and I hope you're ready to dig in. Are you ready to dig in? Yes. Yes, sir. Um, in some ways, I was really hoping the Lord would come because I really don't want to deal with the first 16 verses of chapter 11. That's but right. <laughs> I really don't. It's a very, very yeah. difficult passage, one uh, indisputably one of the most difficult passages in the Scriptures. But let me conclude, if I might, um, with verse 31 of chapter 10 and make three kind of concluding comments that I think are really helpful. Now, um, when I say liberty or freedom in Christ, you're, you're tracking with me now, right? I mean, I don't need to review all that again, but we're talking about the, the responsible freedom we have in the non-moral areas of life. Remember that? And that's what Paul's addressing in these three chapters, and he's dealt with a number of things but I like the conclusion um, of this in chapter 10 <clears throat> because he says something in verse 31 that I want to tie in with verse 23. Um, I see there three terms that help us when it comes to making wise decisions, when it comes to responsibly exercising our freedom in Christ. In verse 31, Paul says, whether then you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That's a, that is a very, very important verse for us. Isn't it? When he says, whatever you do, he is broadening it beyond just what we eat and what we drink. In other words, that's the primary issue in Corinth. Remember, it was eating meat. Remember that whole issue? So he's broadening it. He says, as a matter of fact, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So it seems to me that that is helping us to formulate a guideline. So in the exercise of our liberty, The exercise of our liberty in Christ, okay, now I'm writing real fast, I don't know if you can even read that. We need to ask ourselves a question. Question number one from verse 31 is, can I glorify God in or through this? Would you agree? That is a proper principle for us to try to discern and, and, and figure out and draw and apply for our lives. Because he is concluding his discussion, chapter 10 now, he is concluding his discussion about liberty, freedom in Christ, and the non-moral areas as it relates to things that we normally do, eating and drinking. And the eating was that matter of eating meat sacrificed to idols. But he's drawing it out. He's trying now to create an overarching principle 
Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What does that mean? That sounds spiritual, doesn't it? It just sounds, you want to say amen to that. You want to shake your head. You want to even have a word of prayer now. I mean, it's, you know, it's just great. But now, what does that mean? I'm going to sit down because this is going to take a while, I can tell. Um, seriously, though, let's talk about that. What does that mean to glorify God in, through this, whatever it is? Please. Um, Turn. Okay, I'd like to give an example. Of, sure. Uh, well, I, I would have the, uh, the impulse to give an example of, oh, okay, well, if I'm in a situation and I'm drinking some friends, at a bur- well, I'm at a friend's birthday party, I'm thinking about having a drink, and is there, you know, we've gone over that. But what if it was the other way around? Um, like, uh, if you were around somewhere, um, and there was an issue for you to go into a bar to be with people who weren't necessarily mm-hmm. of that. Um, could you possibly make a case that you could be glorifying God by going and being with them? I, I, it's, it's loose, but it's just kind of like it's just a way. Well, you're, you're you're commenting on a situation, and I think I'm hearing a question actually in there. <laughs> Uh, can you glorify God in doing something like that? Sure. I mean, I, I can't say no in, in an absolute categorical sense. Um, let me, I'm going to expand on that and use your ex- example as an illustration. I'm going to just throw out a whole bunch of really, some sound innocuous, silly, stupid, dumb, simple. All those can apply. But this is a term a verse rather that when he says whatever you do it is to be understood as all encompassing there's nothing outside of this whatever you do is ex- is inclusive of everything when I get a good night's sleep does that glorify God? okay now most of you are you're sort of saying because you know First of all, you don't want to say anything because you're afraid I'll call on you and then I'll embarrass you so that you're a typical student in that sense. But in what sense is getting a good night's rest glorifying God? Just taking care of your body. Taking care of your body. We are to be responsible stewards of what God gives us. And so, I mean, another way, I mean, you could turn it in, into a negative. If I constantly go through two, three hours a night's sleep within a fairly short period of time, that's going to take a toll on you. That will have an effect on you. And that is not being responsible, and it's not being a good steward, so it's not bringing glory to God. It's abusing that which God has given you. Um, it's summer. It's a, the, the temperature is 72 degrees outside. There's a gentle north breeze, and I'm out cutting my grass. Am I glorifying God in doing that? Yeah. Now, if it's 100 degrees, and there's no way. No, I'm just kidding. But so, yeah, the answer to that is yes. How about um, if I, oh, let me make up a, Peggy and I went to the, um, over Christmas, uh, uh, right, the weekend right before Christmas, we went to the, the symphony's uh, Christmas, uh, what do they call it? Christmas concert, whatever they call it. 
And I mean, it was it was really. Were we glorifying God doing that? Sure. You see what I'm saying? In other words, if you start thinking that everything I do can bring glory to God, how so? Well, God invented music. God gifted all those people that are on that stage. They may or may not be personally singing to God's glory, but all of those things reflect wonderful gifts from God. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Peggy and I, and we, we go to the symphony quite frequently, and you know the majority of those performers are probably not disciples of Christ. They're probably not personally walking. They may not, some do. I know one of the, the leaders of the Omaha Symphony is a, 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 a very clear Christian. I know him quite well. But many of them are not. But every one of those people up there is gifted by God with extraordinary talent. And they're playing Bach, or they're playing Beethoven, or they're playing Mozart, or they're playing some of the newer artists or whatever. That is glorifying to God. As we appreciate and as we appreciate and um, celebrate those kinds of gifts, whether that person is personally acknowledging it or not, we're bringing glory to God. When my wife plants, as she always does in the spring, hosts of flowers. I mean, it's really quite remarkable what she does. That love of beauty, of adorning our yard, our small little piece of property with lots of flowers and bushes. Because our God's a God of beauty. Our God created those flowers. Our God created those flowers for his own personal glory, and he shares it with us. We are bringing glory to him. You see what I'm saying? It's, to me, this is one of the most liberating verses in the Bible. Because if I, if I am appreciating, participating with, and enjoying that which God has created, I'm bringing glory to him. Asking that question can put you in the mindset of recognizing Yeah, well, I mean, it, really, it, it does. Now, in terms of our liberty... Then we have to ask, and, and I think that's where your question and, and illustration was getting, how far can I push this and bring glory to God? Now, hear me out as I'm framing the question. <laughs> but in and of itself, a restaurant that serves alcoholic beverages is not in and of itself evil. That building is not evil. That table is not evil. That food... Can I go, and this is what the Corinthians are asking him about the, the, the temple, the idol temple. Can I go into that, enjoy that food, and bring glory to God? Paul's initial answer is yes. But that's not the only factor that determines your behavior. So, you know, I was, this goes back maybe 10 years. It was really, it was really something, it was kind of a shock for both me and Peggy. We were with a rather prominent businessman, and he took me and Peggy and a, a pastor who's a good friend of ours and his wife uh, for a steak dinner, and it was really a delightful evening. It was really something because everybody ordered wine except me and Peggy. And I'm watching this pastor, you know, and it was, it's just, it, it was really an interesting scenario for us because normally when we're with people like that, nobody drinks alcohol, but that was not the case in this situation. Of course, in the many years I was in leadership, I was in situations like that all the time. I know those guys very, very well. I know their deep commitment to the Lord. 
But they made a choice in their freedom to enjoy a glass of wine with a steak. There is no way I'm going to sit there and say they have just sinned. If in their conscience they can, that's, you know what I mean? Now, if they both stammered out of that restaurant drunk, then that's abusing the liberty and freedom. And that's one of the challenges. Because the wisdom of our freedom is, how far can I exercise my freedom before I begin to abuse it? Drunkenness is an abuse of freedom. And Jim, are you, you have s- now enslaved yourself to something other than God. You have now tied your entire destiny to something that is going to enslave you, not liberate you. Do you follow me? So it's re- these are delicate questions because what we really want is just tell me what to do and I'll do it. I don't want to struggle with it. I don't want to live with the tension of this. Well, in that situation you're talking about, too, I, I, my mind goes to considering those around you, too. I mean, the whole point mm-hmm. of not, not causing other people to stumble. Mm-hmm. You know, you have, in, in those situations, you know, you may make a decision that you think is okay for you, but I think some of the obligation that we have is for those around us as well. Absolutely. And, you know, what, That's and, and, and in itself, having that glass of wine could be, you know, fine for us. But it's going to cause Ken to stumble mm-hmm. like this. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Or if if you're with someone and you know that that is personally offensive to them, personally, you know it's offensive to them, as Paul tells us in chapter 9, I'm willing to give that up for the sake of that person. You see, it's really interesting because I don't know about you, but I don't want to live with this tension. I don't want to wrestle through this. Just tell me what to do. That's... That's not the reality of living in a fallen, broken world where we are seeking to bring glory to God in everything we do. And so often, not always, but so often bringing glory to God is a willingness to surrender my rights for the sake of others. Jim, the, the Holy Spirit is, is uh, working in our lives uh, all the time, present with us. And uh, that allows us... Uh, we're not just out there by ourselves. Absolutely. We have an inner guidance and a, and a feeling, of, like you mentioned, about our situation and whether or not we can or cannot. It's not like, gee, I don't know, I guess I'd have to go with the Bible and figure it out before I go to the... I don't, it's not that awkward, is it? I, mean, if you're I don't worse, think so. And I, I mean, it, the, the Spirit, as we grow and mature, sensitizes our conscience in how we respond to certain situations. And it's, uh, it, it, is, it is not easy, though, because there is tension. And as my wife, one of her dictums is, if I'm starting to feel uncomfortable, I'm just not going to do it. Without it, not making a big deal out of it, she just, I'm just choosing not to do it. It's very possible life is so full of choices. Absolutely. It's very possible that uh, you're in a catch-22 situation there you are sitting at the table and you hear some people order that, oh, they're having onions, okay? And you know that over here is another friend that, that uh, would be really an offense to right. him. And, but you're going to be offending somebody if you do, <laughs> and somebody if you don't. Yeah. So what yeah. is the choice? Yeah, yeah. And I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> but I know, but you're, you, those kind of, exactly, exactly. Where you, you, 
what Peggy and I decided to do quite a, quite a number of years ago is we just we made a couple of decisions of how we were going to respond to certain situations. And then it became just known, well, Peggy and Jim, that's just the choice Peggy and Jim have made. And everybody was comfortable with that. But it's when you're in new situations or sometimes awkward situations, and again, without trumpeting it, make it it's not a test of sanctification. This isn't a test of holiness. It gets back to what we were talking about several weeks ago about conscience and about our choices. <coughs> now, let me, let me do You had your hand up, too. Uh, it was, I know it's yeah, back about five minutes. I was but, just taking it as what nourishes us mm-hmm. rather than, you know, you stop at nourishment before you're going to gluttony, you know. And what we do in the face of God or in the Word of God is, is to enjoy His gifts. That's right. That's right. I mean, that's how I and so many of his good gifts in our life can become in excess things that actually put us into bondage. And you used an example, gluttony. Mm-hmm. Food is a good gift from God. That, God created all this. But it can turn into gluttony. And in that, that is an abuse of our freedom, an abuse of the gift. It's kind of funny to me that um, in, in my experience with this, and I'm sure some others around the table will feel this way, that the the discipline of doing this, the discipline of asking to this glorify God, is seen as a weakness um, by people around, and, and sometimes I know that comes from maybe being in the wrong circles, but sometimes comes from the inherent situation of the circles you have to be in, mm-hmm. work or family or things like that. That it's not just okay, these guys were, were out and they're getting drunk. I'm going to abstain from drinking. Um, but sometimes you get piled on on top of that yeah. and the whole group around you starts pressuring you into doing mm-hmm. it so it becomes even more of a discipline and even more of a challenge and even more of I dare say an attack on on your on, on my ability and you know um, in, in, in a lot of areas I've, I've failed just because of the say the peer pressure or the just the Wanted to keep the harmony <laughs> yeah. of the group, yeah. and and you know I feel like I'm getting better at it. When you say fail, what do you mean by fail? Fail to ask the question or fail to stand by okay. the answer okay. to the question. Okay. Um, and uh, for lack of a better term, if you're not glorifying God, you're probably falling into sin, and so therefore mm-hmm. sinning. Mm-hmm. And you know, of course, repenting of that later and asking for. Forgiveness, but some, you know, it gets frustrating because it's not just if if it if it were as simple in a lot of these situations, does this glorify God? Sometimes it is simple. It's like it's an easy decision for you. But that piling on of the world that expects you to not glorify God and not represent Him well, Mm -hmm. it's uh, it's a battle. Well, it is. Let's look at verse 23 and see if we can draw two additional terms, two additional words, two additional guidelines. We have seen this several times in this section, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. All things are lawful, as I shared with you, that's a Corinthian slogan. Paul doesn't disagree with that, but he says, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all edify. So two other 
two other guidelines, two other terms, and they're both from verse 23. Figure them out? That was not a rhetorical question. <laughs> Figure them out? What would be what would be another, one of the words we would put from verse 23? Law. Um, all things. Say it again? All. All things. All, um, all things are lawful. He doesn't disagree with that, but not all things are profitable. Some of your translations might translate that a little differently. And the second one is all things are lawful. He doesn't disagree with that, but he says, but not all things build up. Build up. What's the word edify? Okay. It's like I'm speaking a foreign language. Are you guys with me? Yeah. yeah. All right? So the first one is glorified. The second one is profitable. The third one is edified. All right, the second guide, first guideline is you ask yourself, in this exercise of my freedom, can I glorify God through that? Very broad. And he is encouraging us to ask that question. Can I glorify God through this? Second, now I'm, there's no particular order here, I'm just, because we were in verse 31, but I'm going back to verse 23 now. The second guideline is, in the exercise of my freedom, is this profitable? Um, that's, do any of your, trans, some, I know we have several different translations around the table, do, do any of your translations have a different word other than profitable? Constructive. Constructive? Good. Speaking have helpful. Helpful? Good. Okay. Profitable, helpful, constructive, expedient to what end? To us. To you. To the good of others. For the good of others. See, it's, it's not... It's, yeah. I mean, this is... This, again, is a broad term. That is applied to a lot of different scenarios and situations. Now, you have heard me say this. At least I think you have. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you forgot it. Maybe. Anyway. But I've often talked that as we grow in Christ, as we grow in a relationship with him, we need to develop in our own lives, we need to develop a strategy for holiness. That's, that's something that God kind of expects us to do, a strategy for holiness. In other words, for example, in 1, Corinthians, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, the Apostle Paul near the end of the chapter says, the will of God for you is that you be holy. That's, that's pretty big. I used to tell my students, because one of the questions I've been asked hundreds of times, I think, in the 37 years I've been in higher education, Dr. Reckman, what's God's will for my life? I always direct them to first that's five. Ninety-six percent of God's will for your life's already been revealed. He wants you to be holy. He wants you to be sanctified. So that's man, that's broad, involves so many different things, but profitable. Is this conducive? Is this constructive? Is this helpful in me attaining the goal of walking with God in holiness? Cutting my grass? Yeah, because I'm a steward of that. That's an important responsibility he has. You see, that's, that's where all of these things that you see throughout Scripture start to now be funneled down. All things are lawful, but not everything is profitable. 
how you manage your time. How you manage your time is an important issue in carrying out, exercising, following through on your liberty. You follow what I mean by that? Because time management, stress management, managing interpersonal relationships, all of those things, you're asking yourself, is this profitable? As I am carrying out, exercising my freedom in Christ, is this profitable? Is it constructive? Is it expedient? Is it helpful? Is it helping me to get to that goal which God has for me? Again, it's very, very broad. Are video games, not a broad statement, are video games sinful? No, of course not. But if you play them eight hours a day, that's not profitable. That's not expedient. That's not constructive. That's not helpful. Because you see, that which in exercising your freedom and liberty in Christ, you have to be very, very careful that that which you exercise in your freedom does not turn around and actually end up enslaving you. Or you become enslaved to that which is good. Can you become enslaved to that which is good? Food? Absolutely. Video games? Entertainment issues? Those things which are innocuous and neutral... When it comes to an ethical or moral value, can become that which actually enslaves you. And then the third term he uses is, but not all things edify. What does that mean? Do any of you have a different word there, a different translation? Build up. That's that's probably the best way to flesh out edify. Build up. Build up in what sense? Okay, obviously, you didn't hear that. Build up <laughs> in what sense? Your holiness. Say it again. Your holiness. Your holiness. Mm-hmm. Your faith. Your faith. Becoming more Christ-like. You're becoming more Christ-like. Your walk with Him. In other words. Um, I'm trying to think of something outside of entertainment because entertainment's so obvious, but um, so much. Now, I hope you don't disagree with how I'm phrasing this because I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm issuing some legalistic order here. I'm not. But so much that today is on television, um, television as entertainment isn't terribly edifying. Um, oh, I don't remember. One time during the break, um, we turned, I don't even remember where it was, but anyway, we turned on uh, Dick Van Dyke. Show. You probably don't even know what I'm talking about. Dick Van Dyke is an old situation comedy. I mean, it is really old. I, like, I think it's in the 60s, if I'm not mistaken. But the reason I'm bringing that up is simply this. Peggy and I watched that, you know, it was half hour, and we were throughout the thing continually laughing because it was really funny. It was really humorous. I cannot think of, a, of the last time I watched situation comedy that's on television that's in any way comparable to that. So much of situation comedy today is tied into the sensual, the sexual, 
you know what I mean? And that's, it's, it's mocking and making fun of those things that are very, very important to God. And so you have to say, I, 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 let me, what would be an example? Friends. Again, I'm tr- trying to make it so that you don't think if I watch Friends, I'm singing, sinning. That's not what I mean. But Friends, as a situation comedy, it's very hard to find anything terribly edifying in that. Because it's tearing down and mocking and making uh, fun of that which God considers to be very important. Sexual faithfulness. Marriage. You follow what I mean? It makes fun of those things. It mocks those things. So you have to ask yourself, without universalizing the standard, no Christian should ever watch Friends. I, that's, not, that's not right. That's not the right way to say it. But if I'm going to look at what is profitable and edifying, then I have to be very critical. Critical in the decisions I make on what I'm going to watch, what I'm going to listen to, what I'm going to... You follow what I'm trying to say? This, and that's hard because that is... You, you, you want to say, but I have the freedom in Christ to watch that. You do. But Paul is saying, not everything is profitable, not everything is edifying. You have to make that decision. I'm not going to tell you whether you should watch it or not. And that's why I hesitated to use that as an example. But it, was, it struck me when we watched that Dick Van Dyke program. I mean, that was genuinely funny. It really was. It's just he is gifted. He was, it was one of those really silly, stumbling around almost. Um, what they used to call it, vaudeville type of stuff, you know, where you're, you're stumbling and tripping. It just, anyway, it's hard to see a lot of that today. And even if I can be really bold, even the way in which news is presented today, news is entertainment. It's not neutral, objective presentation of information that you then process. And if you want an illustration of that, Watch Fox News for a half hour and watch MSNBC for a half hour, and you will see neither one is presenting objective. It has a perspective that they're showing, and that's fine. You just have to make sure you watch that. Be careful about it. Now, unless you want to talk about this anymore, I'm done. I want to finish. We now go into another area of liberty in Christ, but it's a totally different situation. This is liberty and freedom as we come to worship services. Any concluding questions or thoughts? I'm concluding with three guidelines for us, and they all revolve around three key terms. Glorify God, profitable, and edify. Ask yourself those questions. And you and you alone have to decide that. All right? Can I leave it? Yep. Okay. I was hoping you'd have a lot more questions. Okay. Responsibility that I made a commitment to someone else on, um, and I'm 
going to bed because I'm going to get a good night of sleep. Yeah. Um, that, that's a different. It, that's a different. That's a different way to frame the question. I'm not really glorifying if yeah. I'm disobeying. Yeah. Or if I yeah. let somebody else down. Yeah. No, uh, that's that's right, Daryl, and it's uh, it 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 just illustrates again, I think, how difficult and complicated this is for us. Someone, I forget, one of you used the word tension. There is tension in this area. And I don't know about you, but I don't like the tension of life. I don't, I don't enjoy that, but that's a reality. It's the reality of, of, of then, and that's why the Bible, if I can answer your question another way then, or your comment another way, that's why the Bible, and here's where the Old Testament is so helpful, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Psalms, The Bible encourages us to begin to use words like wisdom, discernment, discretion, understanding as we make these decisions in our freedom in Christ. A wise person, before they get a good night's rest, is making sure that all their obligations have been met. That's what Solomon says in the Proverbs. A good night's rest comes from those who have fulfilled their responsibilities. You can sleep well. But if you leave a lot of things undone, commitments that you made, you go to sleep. Solomon says in the Proverbs, that's not that's the way of the fool. You see what I'm saying? So that there are the guidelines that help us then in making the kinds of decisions and carrying out our freedom. Uh, I know we've talked about this before. Uh, to me, a very important wisdom word is the word discernment, which I define as insight into the consequences of our choices. And that's because our choices, so many of our choices are very um, innocuous innocuous and not terribly value-laden. You understand what I mean when I say it that way? In other words, the the choices we make, sometimes those choices are not moral or ethical choices, they're just choices. I'm choosing to have, uh, I can't think of a good example. I'm choosing this, but it has consequences that I don't maybe completely see but in about three weeks I'm going to see the consequences of that choice um, for example today many 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 students are uh, in order to, to go to college or even graduate school are taking on a great deal of debt now in and of itself that's not an evil but if you graduate from a four year college program with $70,000 in debt which many are now doing, that has enormous consequences for the next 20 years of your life. So the Bible says, be wise. To go into debt in and of itself is not necessarily evil, but it has all kinds of consequences that are going to just roll through your life. And it will then affect other choices. Another way of saying that, there now will be certain things you're simply not going to be able to do. That's one of the challenges that we face. And we live in a culture today. Now, again, debt in and of itself is not an evil. The Bible counsels us to be very, very wise in taking on debt. To be extremely wise. But the culture, generally speaking, that's not a value that our culture generally has starting from the United States government on down to individual people. 
and we're starting to see the consequences of that. Um, so if you're talking about sleep, the Bible seems to say, sleep well, get a good night's rest, but make sure all of your obligations have been met. As a matter of fact, meeting all your obligations is conducive to a good night's sleep, Solomon says. I'm paraphrasing one of the points he makes. If I choose to... Um, if, uh, if I choose a certain job or a certain uh, uh, opportunity that's presented to me, in and of itself that choice is not evil. But a wise person is going to think through all of the consequences of a choice like that. Um, is it going to involve the necessity of me moving to another place? What will be involved in that? What what are, this, what are the rippling effects of the life of my family if we move to another city? You know, I mean, they're the kinds of things God wants us to think through those. That's a wise person. In exercising your responsible freedom, wisdom, discernment, discretion, and understanding are the guiding words for us in how we make those decisions. You mentioned obligation. And then you also mentioned earlier like abstaining from drinking. What is... Your obligation to, you know, I mean, I think society as a whole has been trying to promote same-sex marriages. Very much so. And everything like that. And, and I have taken the opinion to abstain from any comment, comments on that. But is it our obligation to preach God's word to others who think that I'm intolerant and for... You know, you want my opinion? Well, I have an earlier point. So. <laughs> oh, good night. Um, it came up in my household with the Duck Dynasty comment. Sure. Oh, um, yeah. Recently. Yeah. So, um, and my wife said, well, God thinks you should tolerant. And I'm like, well, this is clearly stated a man should not lay down with a man and a woman should not lay down with a woman. But uh, then, you know, then the question comes, what if one of your children comes up to you? And I said, well, you know, I would have to say, you know, that's not what God tells us in the Bible. I would love you to have but But it's God's job to judge, not mine. I think the uh, I thought about this a lot. Like a lot of gay, you know, homosexuals that work for us, and uh, I think the Pope said the most interesting thing about this. He said, "You need to stop obsessing about homosexuality and abortion." And you know, God sees like a lot of things as sin, and the Bible says clearly that you know one sin is the same as another, and you know. What we've been telling our kids is, you know, God does not like that, and he says that's sin, but I sin just as bad as these guys do. I have a problem with idolatry. You know, I idolize just one of the many things, and I'm obsessed with cars. You know, I mean, that's no different a sin to God than, than homosexuality or abortions. And so, you know, I, I think the thing that, that Phil said, you know, on Duck Dynasty is try to get that across, but that's what I tell my kids. 
everybody's looking at me. <laughs> Does anybody else have something they want to say? No, I don't. Um, there really, in in both both of your comments, there there really are almost layers of issues. There, I mean, it's there's no simple um, way to respond to to a couple of the things that you're saying. Um, first of all, let me let me make this comment because I think it's a very important one. The the man uh, who, who was the Duck Dynasty guy that's but what's his what was his first name? Phil. Phil. Okay. What Phil said was not in and of itself an unbiblical or uh, a non-God-honoring statement. But how he said it and the context in which he said it gives some evidence of not being very wise. You follow what I'm saying? In other words, I studied under a guy who he was, well, you know, I think you know him, Tony Evans. Do you know that name? He, I had uh, homiletics with him when I was at Dallas Seminary and and that, when I was there, he was just getting started. Today, uh, I mean, I think he's one of the most, uh, one of the greatest preachers today that is, is in the United States and great expositor of God's Word. But he used to say to us, and it was men because it was an all-male class, so I don't mean to offend that women shouldn't hear this too, but he would say to us, men, after you've exegeted the Bible, in other words, after you've studied the Bible, Make sure you also exegete your audience. Now, I don't know if you understand what he meant by that. Make sure you've exeg- you understand what the Bible says, but also make sure you understand the group, the person, the individuals, the, the age group, whatever it is, of the people to whom you're about to speak. In other words, you can use it in a very simple illustration. You're teaching adults versus children. You're not going to say the same thing to those two groups. You're going to teach the same truth, but it's going to be presented very differently. If you're speaking to a believer and speaking to an unbeliever, how you say things is going to be so important because to a a, a group of believers who clearly mature, know God's word, understand the creation ordinance of God, where he lays down the boundaries of sexuality, crystal clear. There's no ambiguity. It's, it's not unclear. If words mean anything, God's view of sexuality is as clear as it can possibly be. There's no lack of clarity there. But if I'm speaking to a group of Christians and I say, okay, here's what God, oh yeah, everybody's shaking their head. But I speak to a group of people who are not believers. If I say God's view of sexual, all of a sudden, I'm about this close to being a Nazi in their view. Because I'm intolerant, I'm bigoted, I'm hate-filled. You know. So, I mean, I've been in situations like that uh, many, many times. So I'm very, very, very careful how I frame my comments when it comes to accurately reflecting what God's Word says. So, Phil, it... it illustrated to me was not being very wise in what he said. What he said, I can't disagree with what he said. But how he said it, that was not wise. In other words, the Apostle Paul said, you remember we studied this in, in, uh, a couple of weeks ago, Paul says, I'm very sensitive to the group. 
To a Jew, I'm a Jew. To the Greek, I'm a Greek. To the weak, I'm weak. He's really sensitive to the group he's with. Because I want to do one thing and one thing only. I want to declare the gospel. So if you're speaking, you know, Mark would know what I mean. If you have a group of Muslims around the table, it's going to really matter what you say. If you're accusatory and you hammer them and say, you really believe that the Quran teaches this about Jesus? You idiot. Nobody believes that. Well, they'll probably call Hezbollah on the number and and in about a day you'll be dead. I'm making that up. But we have a guy coming to campus next next week uh, next month who his entire life has been ministering to Muslims, and he recently was with some of the leaders of Hezbollah, and the leaders of Hamas in the Middle East. And he what he was doing is he was saying, "What does the Quran teach about Jesus? Help me to understand." And so they summarized what the Quran taught, and he said, "Now." And he would start probing with because he laid the groundwork by here's what we can agree with. You believe in Jesus? Yes. You believe Jesus is a prophet? Yes. You believe Jesus is one of the most important prophets of Allah? Yes. Do you believe Jesus is coming back? Yes. All of a sudden, you've established a commonality. That's wisdom. Instead of hammering them over the head with their Bible. When we're talking in our culture today about sexuality, we got to be. We have to be. What does Jesus say? In um, where is that? In I think it's in Luke chapter nine. We have to be shrewd. We have to be really, really. Shrewd. He said the sons of darkness are shrewder than the sons of light. Right. What I said, Luke, I think it's Luke 9, but I, um, you all are catching me off guard with these questions, so I don't, um, it, it seems to me, but I, I might be uh, wrong, but it's, uh, I can find it in a second. Uh, but it's, it's about being, it's, it's really an instructive, um, it might be Luke 16, actually. It's maybe Luke 16. If you don't mind now, that's, um, Well, anyway, I can't remember where it is, but you can find it. So that's part of my answer to your question and what Dave said, too. Now, listen to me. Uh, but I want to make, so that's one layer. Now, I want to go to another layer. Issues of sexuality and issues of life are tied into the creation ordinance of God in Genesis chapter 2. They are foundational issues. Sexual sin is, you are right, Dave, absolutely you're right. In God's eyes, lying and and, and uh, misappropriating property and greed and idolatry is just as evil as sexual sin. That's correct. But there is a scandalous nature to sexual sin. Because, and and, and that, that becomes very clear. And if you, look, if you look very carefully at Genesis 3 through Genesis 9, you see the downward spiral of what happens. 
in the, in the line of Cain. Because one of the early names mentioned in Genesis chapter 4 and into 5 is Lamech. And what did Lamech do? He took more than one wife. He took many wives. And he was sexually promiscuous. And what happened? It destroyed. And then it says he murdered. So what did he do? Lamech, it shows the devastating effects of denying the creation ordinance of God. It is the downward spiral of culture, sexual promiscuity and murder, because it attacks the image-bearing value of life. Why are humans of value? Because they bear God's image. And Genesis 9 says, if, you, if I kill him in a premeditated manner, I have now given up my right to live. Because I have destroyed an image bearer of God. Why did God say that in Genesis 9? Because Noah and his family had just gotten off the ark. And God had just destroyed all life. And God wanted to make sure, now Noah, I want you to make sure you don't misunderstand. I judged sin. But the value of human life has not been diminished. As a matter of fact, I want to reemphasize how valuable human life is to me. And James, in James chapter 3, verse 9, says, even if you curse an image bearer of God, you have cursed God. Which is really interesting, isn't it? So they become important guidelines. So to me, Dave, I, I mean, I agree with what you're saying. I don't disagree with that. But sexual sin and murder are more scandalous because the effects that they have Adultery destroys a family. Not only destroys the covenant that a man and a woman make, it destroys a family. And if you need evidence of that, you've had your eyes closed. In the same way with, we have, and I, I, I'm saying this only as a factual statement, since 1973 we have killed 54 million babies in the United States. That's a pretty serious statistic for me to grapple with, to think about. 54 million children that could have grown, could have matured, could have made a significant contribution to civilization. So it does seem to me how a culture treats life and how a culture treats sexuality is a marker of the values and morals of culture. So if it is that serious, how come we should be very sensitive? Be really what? Sensitive to the same. If it is that serious, how can we be very sensitive at the same time? Because if it's gonna the, culture, the, culture, the, the culture doesn't buy your value system. The culture doesn't buy God's value system. And the most important thing for you and me is to get them to the point where they are challenged by the message of Jesus Christ. Get more sugar with honey. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, this is really, that's why Jesus says, I, I, again, I, I, I can't remember the exact passage that's in, but Jesus says, be shrewd. So it's, Mark, we have to, what does that look like? And I think we have to be, that's part of really thinking through what that means. It's, and it's delicate because uh, I don't want to be called intolerant. And I mean, I'm, I never hide what I believe that the Bible teaches. But I'm often very careful how I present it. Depends on the group I'm with and so on. 
But I mean, these are very serious issues. But ha- listen, when Paul was addressing these issues to the Corinthians, he is that their situation was very, very similar to our situation today. It, it really is. It's almost exactly identical. And he's helping them to know what it means to live in a culture that's going in the total opposite direction. And that's where you and I are today. And it's, uh, it's, it's not easy. But you see, we are the salt and we are the light. If God took us all home, there would be nobody left to represent him and his values. And to proclaim there is another way to live. And that's through Christ. Yes, Derek. as Christians who have you know we, we're going to have to get comfortable at some point with being challenged and being uh, taken the wrong way or whatever Absolutely. Um, we're so used to and especially in this society as being the, the dominant perspective the unchallenged perspective the, the because it is you know just the, the assumed perspective and Right now, I feel like a lot, especially with this issue, a lot of believers are kind of reeling back and just kind of mm-hmm. like trying to stay out of the, because we don't know what to do with it. We're trying to stay out. We don't want to be labeled a certain way. We don't want to offend people. Um, but that's not even going to work because it. I got a scenario for us, and it may be something that as a grown person, as a grown man, we'll run into, but probably more so like if you got a son that's coming up right mm. now or a daughter mm. 15 20 years from now one of them may be encountered with a situation where their rejection of a person of the opposite sex will be considered an offense it will be considered bigotry I can give some examples oh sure uh, not, oh, it's, it's not going to take 15 20 years right. it's going to take five <laughs> right. we are really young so the rejection of the way they handle the the advances of another mm-hmm. person of the same sex could land them in the boat of being mm-hmm. bigots. Yeah. So at some point there's nowhere to, there's no way to hide. <laughs> We're gonna have to just learn though how to be shrewd, how to mm-hmm. deal with these situations, how to address it. Hammering people may not be the way. Maybe it's just making them think about it or quite so yeah anyway. That's mm-hmm. Well, it's uh, it's hard to really envision how quickly things deteriorate once you start as a culture. I honestly, I never ever thought I would live to see. Honestly, I didn't. I knew it was coming because of the trend, but I never thought I would live to see the day where same-sex marriage is now a legitimate legal option in many, many states in the union. And the president of the United States has put his stamp of approval on. Now, the laws at the national level have begun to change, but at the state levels, there are still many states where. But that's only a matter of time for, before that. Uh, and that's that's really that's an amazing cultural change. I ne- I did not think I would ever see that, but uh, it has, and its its effects are dramatic. But we're going to have to wait another generation or two to see that how self destructive that really is. But you can't talk like that. You cannot talk like that to most people. Adam made me think of an interesting point. Do you know of any resources or any advice? I don't have children yet, but uh, 
any good resources out there for how to approach this? Because kids are coming up in schools where the postmodern everything mm -hmm. is acceptable mm -hmm. is rampant, and, and like I'm sure talking to kids is hard enough because as they grow older, they become more independent, <laughs> more more apt to reject what the parent might have to say, but in planting that seed so it can grow in them uh, to to follow Jesus and to take you know take it seriously what it means to obey or disobey God. I mean, from the standpoint of sexual immorality, homosexuality, is you there know, resources out there? Oh <laughs> yes, oh there's a lot of stuff. Uh, there really is. Peggy and I took our kids through something called Passport to Purity. It's a, it's a packet, a program that you can use at a lot of different levels. But it is, it is an excellent resource. It, the end of it, the goal of it, is that the kids make a commitment to, to be pure until they get married. That's the end of it. But as a part of it, it's helping them to understand sexuality from the perspective of Scripture. Sexuality from the perspective of God as the creator. Sexuality from the perspective of God as their, as their Savior and Lord. And there are the kinds of things, Andrew, that I think we, we really, we have to be a lot, lot more intentional about that when it comes to family, when it comes to church. Because the ideal of Scripture is that the parents, the parents and the church together raise the kids. That's the perspective of the Bible. That the parents and the children uh, parents and, and the church. And if you go back to the Old Testament, the parents plus the covenant nation. That's what Deuteronomy 6 is all about. And we've got to get, we've got to get back to that. That's why I think we really, personally, this is a strong conviction of mine, we have to rethink how we do the youth ministry in, in America. We really have, because Christian Smith, uh, um, you know, I could rattle off a whole bunch of people, but they've done a lot of study. Generally speaking, now, there are obviously a lot of exceptions, but generally speaking, the youth ministry model that the United States Church has followed since World War II is a failure. If your goal is that those kids are going to embrace the same values, morals, and ethics, and deep-seated commitment to Christ, that has not happened. And if you don't believe me, then you're not thinking, because generally speaking, the, gener the last two generations are much more shallow, much more superficial, and many of them have actually given up their faith. And and, huh? To other things. To oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Ministry or Absolutely. High school ministry, kids ministry, it, all of them are teaching the same things that I've been teaching for many, many years, and it's not going to work because there is a whole bunch of influence out there different from what has been facing the nation going before. Yeah. And that's why, I mean, there are some organizations out that are really, called, one is called Project Orange, and others called D6, from Deuteronomy 6. What they're really saying is we have to go back we have to go back and resurrect an old model that the church plus the parents raise the kids. They are reinforcing and complementing each other. And it's really, it's, it's a fascinating model. And they're even said, we're, we're working on that at Grace. We're re, we've restructured our entire youth ministry program. But essentially, you train guys and gals in youth ministry. A third of your time is with the kids. A third of your time is with the volunteers in the ministry. And a third of your time with the parents. What a different perspective on youth ministry. But it is because 
we have to, instead of parents at about 12, 13, okay, I'm done, now you take them from here, which is how many parents look at youth ministry. Okay, I'm done. Now, you, whatever you're going to do in youth ministry, you take them from here. That's a disastrous way to look at it. That's not the right way to look at it. So what do we do? Now, I'm, I'm on a bunny trail here, and it's late, and I'm going to have to quit. But it kept me from getting into 1 Corinthians 11. Isn't that great? <laughs> it was not that goal. Yeah. That was really my goal. <laughs> now, next week... Next week, we're going to start with verse 2 through 16 of chapter 11. If you have time, I'd really like you to read this, but I want you to read it from this perspective, not from the perspective of hair or veils, but cultural practices that maintain the distinction between male and female. Read it from that. Do you understand my sentence? Read it from that perspective. Cultural distinctives that maintain the difference between male and female. The issue is people are coming to worship service in Corinth. And you can hardly tell the difference between male and female. Paul has something to say about that. But maybe the Lord will come and I won't have to do it next year. Ooh, Adam, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll pray for that, Adam. Yes. Andy. Can I also uh, talk about my my wife Lacey is going into surgery this um, this Saturday uh, for some pretty extensive sinus surgery Ooh. and like going through kind of everything to clear oh out my. some polyps and oh goodness, big deal. She's really nervous about it. Yeah. And, All right. Let me. Lacey. Lacey. Yeah. yeah, Lacey. It's about her 10th sign of surgery. So really? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for this time as we've tried to pull all the threads together about liberty and freedom in Christ. Lord, I hope and uh, certainly have prayed that these comments were uh, pleasing to you as we seek to glorify you. We seek to do that which is profitable and that which edifies as we make our choices in exercising our freedom. Lord, I also uh, uh, just pray that all that we've been talking about these last 20 minutes or so, we're honoring to you. If I said anything that was not of your spirit, would you dismiss it from our minds, but uh, help us to focus and think through carefully what it means to live in a culture that is uh, increasingly more and more antagonistic to what we believe Scripture teaches so clearly. And it's how do we represent you in that kind of a situation? How are we shrewd? How are we careful in proclaiming truth, but in a way that presents the gospel, not necessarily just hammers people? These are very difficult things, but that's the reality of living in a fallen, broken world. We think of these two specific requests, Adam's dad, as he goes in for... Uh, additional tests and evaluation about uh, cancer. Lord, our prayer is, of course, that uh, that you would sustain and strengthen and, and do something miraculous even in his life. Give him that capacity to trust you, uh, capacity to depend on you. We pray the same in a way for Lacey 
Ishiga's in uh, this weekend, or I forget, next week. I forget exactly what Andrew said, but very soon here for this um, uh, next round of sinus surgery. This sounds very, um, very extensive um, in, in, in her uh, whole body here that needs to experience healing. She has struggled with this. I think he said 10 separate surgeries in her sinus area. She is anxious, um, concerned, understandably so. God, give her your peace. Give her that capacity to trust you, and we will give you the praise and glory for what you're going to do. We pray for the surgeon. Pray for all the medical people that we're ministering to her. May this be a complete success and achieve all the goals that they have for her. And we really commit that to you. To give her that, that peace that comes and passes all understanding and only comes from your hand. For the rest of the men here, whatever special needs there might be that we're not aware of, Lord, meet those too. But as we serve you, as we carry out our responsibilities in, in this particular part of your world, help us to represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. See you next Wednesday.